This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest... I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Late last month, a British court sentenced a 23-month-old child to death. The case involved little Alfie Evans. Alfie suffered from a degenerative neurological condition. Doctors were unable to determine its cause. Now the doctors said they wanted to take little Alfie off life support. His parents objected. The doctors took the case to court and the judge ordered that his life support should be discontinued. The doctors said that Alfie would die within hours. Instead, he continued breathing on his own. Alfie's parents fought for their child's life. A children's hospital in Italy offered to take Alfie, and the Italian government offered to fly the ailing boy to Italy for treatment. Once again, the British court intervened. It would not allow the transfer, and said that little Alfie had to die because it was in the child's best interest. So, little Alfie, after being refused food and water for five days, died. Little Alfie was a victim of mandatory involuntary euthanasia. This has happened before in recent history. I discuss Alfie's death with Wesley J. Smith, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism on today's World Lutheran News Digest. And now today's Fast Track. Yesterday, abortion activists with the groups Ultraviolet and Credo protested outside Google headquarters in California, demanding that the media giant remove pregnancy centers from its Internet search results, this according to the Mercury News. Ultraviolet co-founder Shauna Thomas blasted the pregnancy center in a statement claiming that they lure in vulnerable pregnant women and manipulate them into choosing life for their unborn babies. Despite all their claims, abortion activists have not been able to find any real-life woman claiming that she's been mistreated, tricked, or misled in any way by a pregnancy help center. Jay Hobbs wrote that recently in the Washington Examiner. Google, though no friend of pro-life advocates or conservatives, has not caved in to the radical abortion activist demands so far. A Florida Jewish congregation again defeated a discriminatory lawsuit attempting to block them from building a house of worship. Late Monday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit protected the Shabbat of East Boca Raton's ability to build a new synagogue for the Shabbat's congregation. The ruling rejects a bizarre lawsuit that tried to outlaw equal treatment of minority faiths in Boca Raton, Florida. Opposition to the Shabbat's right to build started in 2007, while Shabbat searched for land and worked to get building permits. Shortly after the city of Boca Raton granted Shabbat a building permit in 2015, two landowners sued the city, claiming that the city had somehow established Judaism as the city's official religion. American pastor Andrew Brunson has spent 580 days behind bars in Turkey and will now remain incarcerated for at least 72 more. This after a court on Monday refused to release him pending his next appearance on terrorism and espionage related charges. It's set for July the 18th. After sitting through an 11-hour-long hearing, the vice chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, Sandra Jolly, expressed frustration and dismay. Brunson, originally from North Carolina, has lived and worked in Turkey with his family for more than 22 years before he was swept up during a campaign of mass arrests following a coup attempt in that country. 
If convicted of espionage and committing crimes on behalf of terror organizations, he could face a prison sentence of up to 35 years. Among other charges, the indictment accuses him of dividing and separating the country by means of Christianization of the Turkish people. Jockey Mike Smith, who with the horse Justify, won the 144th Kentucky Derby on Saturday, said after the victory, in his words, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for this blessing on this afternoon and blessing us with this amazing horse. Justify becomes the first horse to win the Kentucky Derby without racing as a two-year-old, first since the horse Apollo in 1882. It's also the second Kentucky Derby victory for Jockey Smith, who also won in 2005. World Liquor News Digest will be back right after these messages. Listening to Worldwide KFUO on the go with your smartphone doesn't mean you have to walk around with earbuds all day. You can Bluetooth across the room to a speaker system in your home or listen on radios that have built-in smartphone cradles. There are many easy ways to listen to WorldwideKFUO.org on the air, online, and on demand. We proclaim the clear gospel message of Christ crucified for our sins. The messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO. Este é Notícias Luteranas pelo Mundo. This is World Lutheran News Digest. I'm Kip Allen, host of World Lutheran News Digest. My guest today is Mr. Wesley J. Smith, who's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. Mr. Smith, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Could you uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and about the Discovery Institute? Sure. The Discovery Institute's a think tank. It's centered in uh, Seattle, Washington. I happen to be uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, we engage a lot of various issues, and the issue that I engage is human exceptionalism, which has to do with the unique and intrinsic value of human life on one side, and on the other side, the acknowledgement that as, a, as the only known moral species in the universe, we have duties. We have duties to ourselves, we have duties to each other, we have duties to our posterity, duties to treat animals humanely, uh, which is not the same thing as animal rights, which creates a moral equality between humans and animals. We support animal welfare uh, and also uh, duties to treat the environment in a proper way without giving rights to nature, which is beginning to happen. For example, the Amazon River has been declared a rights-bearing entity and has human-style rights, which we think is a destructive uh, course on, uh, more than, for more than one reason, but that could be the story of another show. And it would be correct to identify you as a bioethicist. Uh, that's to say I write about bioethics. Uh, I'm a critic of the bioethics movement. Some people call me a bioethicist. That kind of shows you something about what it means to be a bioethicist. A bioethicist does not have to be licensed, for example. Uh, so if one uh, writes about bioethics or speaks about it uh, and some people pay attention to it, which is true with me, uh, then I guess one can call oneself a bioethicist, but I tend not to. Okay. Uh, the reason I invited you onto this program is the case of Alfie Evans, who was the almost two-year-old boy who was, I'm going to say, killed in England recently. As you know, he had a neurological disorder, and he was put into a hospital, and his parents wanted to take him to Italy, where there was a hospital ready to take him, and transportation had been arranged. But the hospital and the British court said, no, the child's case is hopeless, and we're going to let him die. And 
The only way I can describe this was mandatory involuntary euthanasia. It comes close to murder in my view. What is your view of that, sir? Well, I think it was a profound uh, moral travesty. Uh, you, you can't call it murder because it was court-ordered. It was legal. Uh, it was a situation where this uh, child, and this is not the first time this has happened in the U.K., and we've had cases almost like it here in the United States. Uh, this child uh, came down with a, a progressive neurological condition, uh, but the issue is it wasn't diagnosed. They didn't know what the cause was, and as he continually got worse, uh, at some point the doctor said, we want to shut off his life support, and the parents said, no, we don't want to shut off our child's life support. We don't even have a diagnosis. We believe that his life is worth living and that we want to keep looking, uh, A, for a reason for his problem, and B, to find a way to stabilize condition, uh, or if, if not, uh, just, you know, he's our baby, we want to keep going. Uh, and the doctors took the case to court, which is permitted in the U.K., and when the uh, parents said, not only uh, do we want to continue the life support, but we have a hospital associated with the Vatican in Italy, a very respectable children's hospital that is willing to take him and continue the kind of treatment that we want, the court said, the, the doctor said, no, that's not in his best interests, Alfie's best interests, and then the court said, that's right. So you had a double whammy here. The parents were not allowed to make decisions for their child, which robbed Alfie of his right to have the people who love him the most, who bore him, who know him the best, and have and ha are the most intensely interested in his life, make his uh, his medical decisions. And they refused to permit a transfer to a, a another hospital. It wasn't like it was going to go off to some kind of uh, shaman, but it was a, a very respected children's hospital. And so the parents' desires for their child were totally removed, and that child was removed from life support. The doctor said he would die immediately. It took him five days to die, and there was never any chance, based on the way it, it would appear that the uh, fix was in, for Alfie to, uh, to, uh, to be saved because the uh, utilitarian view that his quality of life made his death in his best interest prevailed over the parents' beliefs, and these were not medical decisions but value judgments, over the parents' beliefs that his life was good, his life was worth fighting for, and they were not through trying to find out what the problem was, and it really is a moral travesty. It certainly seems that way, rather, because he was not taking up scarce resources. There was another place that was willing to, to take him. And the decision was simply made that this child's life is not worth living, and it came down from the court rather than from the family. I look at history, and I've run into something referred to as Action T4. I'm sure you're familiar with that, sir. This was a program that was instituted in Germany. And this was before the, quote, final solution, where the Nazi regime actually went into full-scale genocide. This was specifically aimed against mental defectives, people with physical defects, what have you. And basically, between the years of 1939 and 1945, estimates of almost 300,000 people were put to death because they were considered their lives were not worth living and this was indeed mandatory and involuntary euthanasia. Families were not given the choice. 
the the mental hospitals were were emptied out. They were forced to turn over their patients to something that was ironically referred to as the charitable foundation for cure and institutional care, where these people were put to death. The the thing to understand about that is that wasn't a Nazi issue. It was eugenics. And it was also uh, that it's something that came out of the idea that of of a profound rejection of human exceptionalism in which each and every one of us has equal inherent moral worth. The T4 program, which stood for Tiergarten 4, which was the uh, address of the chancellery, and the infant euthanasia uh, program was not forced by the Nazis. It was willingly performed by doctors who had accepted this quality of life judgmentalism. They even called it a healing treatment. Uh, in fact, at first it wasn't open to, to Jews uh, and Jewish people because they thought this was the proper thing, the, the merciful thing. So they said it was a healing treatment. For, for example, if a baby was born with a serious disability, it was a healing treatment for that baby to die. It was healing for the family, it was viewed, and it was healing for the Reich. And all of this came out of a book uh, that was published in 1920, long before you know Hitler was a dark cloud on the horizon, called Permission to Destroy Life Unworthy of Life by Alfred Hoch and Karl Binding. One was a uh, law professor, the other a doctor. And they said that there are three categories of killable people. One would be the terminally ill. The second would be uh, people who are unconscious. And the third they called the idiots that we today would refer to as people with uh, serious either physical or mental disabilities. And they said, and then the permission to destroy life unworthy of life got into the issue of, you know, how, how much money it takes to maintain people with disabilities. And it, and it created a pernicious quality of life judgmentalism that uh, for which after World War II, some doctors were actually hanged for participating in. And now uh, here in 2018, uh, you have things like uh, the uh, Alfie Evans case, the Charlie Guard case, which didn't involve lethal injection euthanasia, but forced removal of life support. But you also have in, in the Netherlands, uh, where under their euthanasia program, the, what's called the Groningen Protocol, disabled babies, babies born with terminal conditions and disabilities, are being lethally injected to kill them, as a, again, because it's, it's for, in their best interests. And the Groningen Protocol was published with all due respect and not, no criticism in the New England Journal of Medicine. So, you know, what goes around comes around. Everything old is new again. We've got, we're not screaming hate from the rooftops, but we've got this pernicious idea that we can judge the value of life based on its quality coming back to the floor and moving uh, very powerfully into bioethical uh, advocacy and literature. And somehow they believe that uh, death by starvation and dehydration is kind. Yeah, well, what they've done, what, what's happened in bioethics, it's not just infants, obviously, but they decided back in the, uh, uh, oh gosh, the 80s, that if you need a feeding tube, that's a medical treatment because it requires minor surgery and a formula. And since the medical treatment can be refused or withdrawn, then, then we can uh, take away feeding tubes also. And, and so you ended up with like the Terry Schiavo case. You also now have advocacy in bioethics, and it's really awful, to say that if somebody with dementia uh, had stated in a, in a written statement before they became incompetent, 
that if they reach a place of a certain level of cognitive incapacity and they want to die that and they're willingly eating and drinking so they don't need a feeding tube well that nursing home uh, or caregivers should be forced to starve them to death anyway now that's not the law but it is being pushed very hard. In fact, recently, if people will go to the National Review online and look me up, I have an article. That, that idea was actually pushed with all due respect in an opinion column in the New York Times. So we are moving in a direction in which some people are being declared to be life unworthy of life, that even people who willingly eat and drink, some are saying we should starve them to death. And you're quite right that if we ever got to the place where we were starving people to death like that, people would say, well, let's not do that. That's a horrible way to go. Let's just lethally inject them instead of saying, wait a minute, let's not starve them to death, which, of course, is the right answer. And either way, it's killing. That, well, that is absolute killing. There's no question about it. Now, when somebody cannot eat and drink and you remove a medical treatment, the feeding tube, uh, an argument can be made that that's allowing, you know, somebody dies naturally because you're not preventing them from eating and drinking. But if you starve somebody to death, you're definitely killing them. I notice, for example, uh, one similarity I think I'm seeing between the T4 program and the very beginnings of something here in the U.S. was that one of the conditions that the uh, Germans that the, uh, had, had uh, listed for euthanasia was Down syndrome, a, 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 a Down syndrome. Now, yeah. we, we are seeing this fight here in the United States now, where there, some states are starting to pass laws saying, that, no, you can't perform an abortion for that. But it's being challenged by the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, and other groups. Well, it, the, the chances of those laws being declared constitutional, I think, are very slight at this point. Uh, uh, Iceland brags that it has eliminated Down syndrome uh, from its population. And, of course, it did that through eugenic abortion. Uh, you have uh, in Denmark, I think uh, the other year they published statistics, they've been accused of saying it, of uh, having a public policy to wipe out Down syndrome. They've denied it, but I think it was in 2016, perhaps that's the last year that we have records for, only four down babies were born. So that tells you something really strongly. And what's really tragic about this is that people, when I grew up, uh, people with Down syndrome were a part of the fabric of the community. Uh, they were, uh, you know, people, they were part of, uh, of everyday life. And in fact, if, if anyone who knows people with Down as I have, they're the most loving and caring people you'll ever want to meet. And yet we are taking this gentle population of human beings who are developmentally disabled and sometimes have health issues, and we're saying, your life is not worth living. Uh, there was a um, fellow with Down syndrome who testified uh, about two months ago, I think, in front of a congressional committee, and they were discussing funding for Down syndrome research. And he basically said, listen, my life is worth living. I know there are people out there who think that my life is worth, isn't worth living and we should be gone, but we belong here. And I was thinking, shame on us that this man felt the need to defend his right to exist. It's really awful. It's horrifying. It really is. Uh, and I think, you know, you really pointed it out with this, the, the concept of eugenics. This was a very popular movement around the turn of the last century. And in fact, that was one of the uh, one of the motivating uh, factors behind uh, Margaret Sanger and other uh, another millennialist from that period. Uh, I think H.G. Wells was another was another advocate. of It was a very progressive movement. Uh, you had Teddy Roosevelt in it. What's really ironic is you had Helen Keller was a eugenicist. And my 
my thinking was, wait a minute, just because you weren't born with your disabilities, did you think that would make you safe, lady? Good grief. You had H.G. Wells, as you said, uh, Bernard Shaw. Uh, there was a law, a, a, a law started to be passed uh, starting around 1908, I believe, in which uh, people who were called the onset, it was in those days it was called the fit versus the onset. People who were deemed to be unfit could be involuntarily sterilized based on these eugenics uh, invidious uh, determinations. In 1927, one of the most pernicious, evil United States Supreme Court decisions came down called Buck v. Bell, 8 to 1, majority opinion by Oliver Wendell Holmes, who infamously said three generations of imbeciles is enough. And he permitted a woman named uh, Carrie Buck, from Virginia, to be involuntarily sterilized on the basis that Carrie Buck was the daughter of a prostitute who, after she was raped by a foster family gave, a member, gave birth to a child, and the foster family, in order to hide the crime, put her in a mental institution where the uh, eugenicist decided, oh, this, this proves our problem, our, our theory. Uh, a daughter of a prostitute gives birth out of wedlock. She's unfit. And uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes and, and seven other justices of the Supreme Court allowed her to be involuntarily sterilized, having done zero wrong. And as a consequence, in, in this country, about 60,000 so-called unfit were sterilized against their will up until about 1960. And California's eugenics law became the basis of the German 1934 Nuremberg Code, uh, which was, or the Nuremberg Laws, I'm sorry, which uh, in, in, was part of the racial hygiene program, which was eugenics in Germany. United States were, were leaders in eugenics, and one of the great villains of American history is named Charles Davenport. Uh, he was the head of Cold Spring Harbor, funded by Carnegie and Rockefeller institutions and things of that sort, which pushed this pernicious uh, goal. It was racist, it was, uh, was anti-Semitic, and, it, and it, it dealt with, uh, as, as Margaret Sanger she wasn't there to help upper middle class women. She wanted to prevent poor people from procreating. So it was really a, a really despicable movement. And unfortunately, the United States were leaders in it. Well, I keep thinking of the infamous Tuskegee experiment where, uh, where African-American who were diagnosed with, with venereal disease were intentionally not treated. It seems to me that eugenics has been a prime tool of racism. Oh, absolutely. There's no question eugenics was a prime tool of racism, and, and, and it's also a, a prime tool of dis, uh, discrimination against people with disabilities and, and so forth. And it's rearing its ugly head again. In, in our time, again, that we've talked about the Down syndrome pogrom, you have advocates like Peter Singer from Princeton University saying that uh, if, since uh, we can abort these children, why not also kill them if they're born? Uh, infanticide is one of the prime pushers of infanticide. And you've got a futuristic movement called transhumanism that seeks to create a post-human species that's also eugenic in its value system and focuses on uh, trying to uh, not only uh, increase create a kind of a neo-immortality uh, through uh, all kinds of technologies, but also uh, genetic engineering of embryos, particularly to improve for intelligence. And one of the things that I notice about these eugenicists is they never talk about improving for love. <laughs> that seems never to enter into the, uh, never enter into the picture. 
Yes. I mean, I don't even think, I wonder if they know how to spell the word. <laughs> or certainly understand it. It, it's a, it is a stunning development, and I think a very, very dangerous one. And I, I like your word pernicious. It's something that is sneaking up on us gradually. Uh, it is a, a devaluing of, of human life. Yeah, it, it's denying the idea of the sanctity and equality of human life. And, and every evil of, of human history comes when we create categories of let's call them uh, killable or uh, disposable or uh, usable people. Uh, human slavery was an example of that. Uh, the uh, antebellum slavery uh, system was pernicious because it took equals and treated them as unequals. Uh, we've already talked about eugenics. Uh, and, of course, uh, we, you know, there are all kinds of invidious uh, methods of discrimination against various categories that begin with the premise that one group of people that has been identified has lower value, lower worth, lower benefit than another group of people. Frightening. And yet we are seeing it today. Mr. Smith, we're coming up to the close of this program. Uh, is there any way that my audience can learn more about this issue? Uh, are they on your website or your organization's website? How can we find sure. out? Yeah, if, if people want to go to discovery.org and turn to the Human Exceptionalism uh, Project, uh, there, there's information there plus my articles. Um, I, uh, I blog regularly on National Review Online and write articles uh, on various issues related to this. If people want to get those articles and are on Twitter, they can follow me at, at ForcedExit. I post all my articles on Twitter. Also, they can follow me on Facebook or go to the Discovery Institute. Okay, sir. That is Mr. Wesley J. Smith, who is with the Discovery Institute. He's the uh, senior fellow for the Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism. Mr. Smith, thank you much for shedding light on this horrible situation. Let's hope that we can do something about it. Well, thanks for having me, having me on. And we do, by the way, in this country, also have futile care, which pushes people off of wanted life support based on quality of life judgmentalism. The only difference between us and the Alfie Evans case is we don't prevent transfers to other facilities. Yet. Yet. Yes, that's very well put. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen. World Lutheran News Digest is a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO. You can also listen to WLN Digest on demand at kfuo.org. To correspond with World Lutheran News Digest, email news at kfuo.org.